This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. China is set to abolish its policy of only two terms as president, meaning this could allow current president Xi Jinping to rule for a much longer time frame, possibly the rest of his life. So how does this change the dynamics of that country? We pose that question and others to Jacques Delis, a law professor and a political science professor here at the University of Pennsylvania, and also Marshall Meyer, the Emeritus Professor of Management. Gentlemen, great to see you. Thank you for joining us today. Good Thank morning. Uh, just get your reaction to this, this move, Marshall, in the first place. A uh, quick reaction. Not a surprise. Surprised as to the timing. I thought it would come much later. Um, also surprised at how little notice seems to have been taken of it, uh, at least in the U.S. press. Shock? Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, it's not exactly news that Xi Jinping is the most powerful top leader of China since Mao, or at least since Deng, um, and that he's really consolidated a great deal of power. Uh, people have been talking for quite some time that he would find a way to stay on beyond 10 years. It is surprising that it's come quite this soon and that it has taken the particular form that it's taken. And I agree with Marshall. There hasn't been much uh, much coverage of it in the Western press, but more shocking than that, there's been very little pushback, uh, as one would expect from foreign governments, particularly the U.S. I mean, usually we would say this is a setback for democratic governance, which China doesn't really have, but at least for a degree of institutional limits on power, which is, you know, disconcerting in an era when authoritarianism seems to be on the rise and, you know, it was already pretty authoritarian in China. Yeah. This is a step down that, farther down that path. Marsha? Oh, I agree entirely with Jacques. Um, uh, I would have expected uh, some outcry from the Congress, from the White House. Uh, in the current environment, however, again, we shrug our shoulders and say, what can we expect? Also joining us on the phone is Ann Lee, who's an adjunct professor of economics and finance at New York University. Ann, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you. What was your reaction to, to this news coming forward in the first place? I like the other two. I was a little surprised it came so soon, but I think this news was expected. And I think that it actually makes sense given that uh, the Chinese leadership is faced with this uh, this Belt and Road Initiative that is basically Xi Jinping's signature project. And given that it's been, you know, receiving some pushback from various nations and um, their uh, tensions there, I think that they feel that it's important to perhaps signal to the world and to, uh, and even domestically, that uh, she's going to be on for a while so that everyone knows that this Belt and Road Initiative will uh, continue um, because he is the face of it. And it's such a massive project that takes longer than five years. People may doubt that it will get accomplished if he's actually not at the helm. And as uh, and in this position, he would be the foreign policy spokesperson and um and so that is probably one of the factors that has contributed to this announcement. Now, this, I guess, technically still has to go through a vote at this point, but that's fairly much a, a foregone conclusion. Uh, yes, it has. The Constitution is amended by the National People's Congress, which is China's legislature. Uh, shall we say there's not a lot of suspense usually involved in how they're <laughs> going to vote on things like this. Uh, they'll meet in March. 
Uh, it, it's a regular cycle. The plenary sessions are, are in March, and a bunch of things will be on the agenda, including ratifying new personnel to a variety of offices, and they'll presumably take this up as well, even if it were to be put off for a following session for some reason, because obviously he's just starting his second term yeah. to start at this session. Um, you know, I don't think that would be significant. It's, it's going to happen unless there's a decision to change policy direction. So was this President Xi, Marshall, really driving this himself? To have this uh, this extension or this, these rules changed, or was it for, from elsewhere within the party? Well, both. Uh, here's a person who likes power and um, uh, breaks norms regularly. Uh, at the same time, look at the forces acting on him. He's being pushed from left and from right. Um, from the right, Jiang Zemin faction still has a little bit of residual power, not a lot. Um, from the left, um, the folks in the party who want to return to the good old days, and that does not mean Deng Xiaoping, it means pre-Deng Xiaoping. So uh, I think that um, uh, he followed his own predilections, but I also think that uh, he's being pushed to have to consolidate power. But seemingly, Anne, it feels like when you when you watch President Xi go about the business of, of China, especially over the last couple of years, he is trying to be more, I guess, Western than, than anybody. It feels like, especially when you see the leader of this country going to Davos and and obviously making conversation there and and, and having a speaking engagement there and, and meeting with other leaders. Oh, absolutely. Actually, China's uh, goal is to become like the socialist society in, of the northern Europeans. I mean, that is how they model themselves. And so the northern Europeans are obviously a Western uh, society. And uh, so he would like for the end goal for China to be like that, a, a very high income, innovative and, and socialist government. And so he needs to uh, more or less kind of adopt its values, its language, and um, and I think that people basically agree that he has sort of the, the leadership and the, the following to do this. Um, it's not going to be an easy transition. I think that people realize that just like when the U.S. elected FDR for four terms, to navigate a very difficult transition from sort of a limited government, laissez-faire society into one of big government, uh, China needs someone who represents that sort of leadership and stability as well to navigate and transition China into a high-income, innovative society and one that's going to take a more prominent role in foreign affairs uh, and one that is going to be able to do that has to be one that can also uh, be respected in the world community. And and right now, Xi Jinping has sort of garnered that respect and attention. And so they, you know, don't want to mess around with that formula. Marshall? Yet there's an inconsistency. Um, open the paper this morning, you're reading about uh, Liu He who's now uh, economics are, I don't know what, what this does to Li Keqiang, by the way, the premier. Um, and uh, Wang Chishan, um has been brought back into the government, I believe, as vice president. So on the one hand, they're trying to westernize the economy. Uh -huh. And 
they're going to try um, to uh, uh, engage the U.S. Uh, as, as much as perhaps Trump's people are pushing against engagement with China in order to sustain their economy. They're worried that investment will be pulled out and that likely it increases as interest rates in the two countries converge, which they're doing. So the um, uh, question I would raise is whether the extension of uh, President Xi's term also extends the party of the power and importantly, the uh, party of the power vis-a-vis -vis the state enterprises which are, uh, as you can see in this morning's journal, uh, loss-making enterprises uh, uh, taking up a lot of the credit space in China yeah. and, um, uh, you know, dragging the economy. So how can they move that economy ahead when you may be reverting uh, to a form of governance uh, that's pre-Deng Xiaoping? Jock? I think clearly what we're seeing is, again, Xi Jinping consolidating power. And the question is, what do you do with power once you've consolidated it and why are you seeking it? Again, it's been in the pipeline for a while. Last fall when they had the party congress, which ordinarily would have put in line the succession, mm -hmm. put two, the two lowest ranking members of the Politburo Standing Committee would have been named and they would have been the young guys who would be eligible for elevation in five years. That wasn't done. So that was sort of the handwriting on the wall. But what we've seen is this gradual consolidation of power in Xi's hands. And the question is, what, what will he do with it? One piece of it clearly is a strong leader for a strong China internationally. That sells pretty well at home. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it sells better at home when they can portray as nationalist-leaning uh, state media in China do, when they can portray the U.S. as being in chaos and other Western governments as being in some chaos, uh, it kind of undercuts the argument for political change. But will he use it to push forward with bold economic reforms, which were promised the third plenum after he came to power? Well, you know, not a whole lot of evidence of much movement in that direction, but that's the happy story. Uh, the clearer story, which is less happy, is this has been a very repressive regime in terms of civil liberties type issues in terms of dissident views and such things. And there's absolutely no sign that this is going to change in that. So whatever the economic outcome may come, it's not going to look like Northern Europe in terms of its politics. 844-942-7866 is the number. If you would like to join in with your comments or questions, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get your phone, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanMaloney21. You mentioned, Marshall, the fact that, that seemingly there not only is there not a lot of reaction on the on the uh, on the global spectrum on this but not a whole lot of reaction within China itself which obviously I don't think is a surprise to a lot of people that that we, you aren't hearing a lot on this correct well uh, imagine the following if I were uh, Chinese in China and I wanted to react would I right yeah I think that uh, 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 folks in China uh, admire Xi Jinping. On the one hand, uh, I've heard from some young people a lot of concern about availability of information. They were used to a more open Internet, for example, and um, that's been constricted. Um, so you're not, you're not going to hear a reaction from China. Or are you going to hear a reaction from governments or states or people on the periphery of China either? I think that's a given in the circumstance. So then, Anne, why do you think then we aren't hearing more from the U.S. or from other countries about this move? Well, the U.S. and every other country also has interest in having a stable China. Uh, they have, you know, major investments in China, and so these corporate leaders certainly don't want 
uncertainty uh, from China in an already uncertain world with Trump. And so that could be a contributing reason why people refrain from saying much. Um, there's already enough tension in the world with North Korea. Uh, and so that's, you know, I think a leading reason. But I also want to go back to the comments that your other guest said about um, the SOEs, you know, taking up more of China's credit. Uh, I think that that is not necessarily a sign that China can't move forward. All the new companies, like their internet giants, Alibaba, Tencent, all those guys, uh, they don't rely on credit. They are growing with equity. They're growing with cash flow. A lot of the other new companies that are uh, basically coming up the pipe are in the same way. These new economy companies don't require debt to grow. And so that is how China's going to make that transition. China's always basically kept one foot in the old space while letting, you know, new companies grow into some new space. That's how they moved into the Industrial Revolution, and that's how they're going to move into this new economy, uh, innovation society. Uh, regarding the Constitution and human rights, uh, Xi Jinping actually has been emphasizing that the whole country study the Constitution more. Uh, basically, you know, ever since they've had the Constitution, China actually hasn't really been uh, paying attention to the Constitution. It's it's really been just there. They haven't really upheld it. Uh, they've sort of selectively enforced it. And uh, perhaps by giving so much attention to the Constitution, Xi Jinping is trying to say, we need to stick to the rule of law for a change. Now, granted, uh, you know, in the Constitution, it does say that the party uh, is basically above the country, and it states in the Constitution. But the Constitution also uh, has very idealistic things, such as freedom of speech and, and other um, human rights issues that mimic uh, what the U.S. and France have, because the folks who wrote it, uh, the folks such as Bill and Lai, uh, they were the ones who spent their youth uh, in France and have developed these uh, and adopted the Western ideas uh, of communism and had idealistic thoughts of how people, you know, can have, uh, you know, all these these rights uh, that they didn't have uh, under the emperors. And so there is hope there that, uh, you know, China can become more Western in that regard. But it, it's too early. It remains to be seen whether, you know, too much power under Xi will corrupt him or not, and that's what we have to, to watch. Marshall? Um, to go back to Anne's comment on Alibaba, again, memory is not perfect, uh, partly because uh, I got off an airplane at 1 a.m. last night. Um, but uh, if I recall, Anne, maybe you can correct me on this, um, Alibaba gave a couple seats on a board, I'm not sure which of its boards, uh, effectively to the Chinese government. We also noted yesterday that uh, NBAG insurance was taken over by the government. Uh, so uh, government influence, uh, whether it's Alibaba, uh, possibly, likely Tencent, uh, seems to be on the increase uh, uh, even in the private sector. Note that they're placing party committees in private sector firms. So I'm wondering what your response to that is. Well, obviously, that isn't 
sort of ideal in Western eyes. But you have to also remember that in the U.S., uh, you know, government overreach and, and, and asking companies to, to work on their behalf are also, uh, even if we don't have uh, formal government uh, and uh, people sitting in the companies, they're basically, you know, doing it behind the scenes. So it's probably more nuanced, right? Because we always hear about how uh, <clears throat> Verizon or Facebook or whatever having given the keys to the government, uh, you know, to do whatever research they need to do. And so it's not like the U.S. government doesn't also have sort of a government overreach and, and invasion into privacy issues. And so I think that um, this is a reality of life. I mean, governments, you know, and, and the private sector, that line is not a very bright line. There are certain overlaps here. And the way the Chinese government has done it um, may be more heavy-handed than what we're used to, but it's not like we're free from it, too. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's obviously not black and white, but I think there are rather different shades of gray here. And, you know, what we have seen is, is China has never had uh, in the PRC era the kind of separation between government and business that is, while less than perfect in the U.S., is a good deal uh, less there than it has been here. And I think part of the concern is trend lines. And what we're seeing is just this gathering of power back into the state. I mean, there was a saying... Uh, even under the later days of Hu Jintao, uh, uh, Xi Jinping's predecessor, about the, the state advances and the private sector retreats. So there was already this concern that what we had been seeing going on throughout the reform era was starting to take a hit. It's taken a bitter, bigger hit under Xi. It seems to me the best spin one can put on that is this gives him the power to force through some quite painful reforms that mm. would be more market-oriented. That was promised again at the third plenum after he came to power. I think most people would say that hasn't gone as far as one would like. Uh, the surveillance state is definitely up in China from already high baselines. And you know how to read the, the fact they're going through the formalities of constitutional amendments, I mean, it's sort of a backhanded compliment in a way that it would be a little too blatant to just have him somehow hang around in the presidency in a blatant violation of the Constitution. Uh, but you know it doesn't strike me as a great step forward for constitutionalization, which has never been very powerful in China. But the bigger concern is it's a step back from institutionalization, which said, you know, you get a lot of power, not as much as she has, you get a lot of power, but it's limited. And one of the things that authoritarian regimes do to avoid some of the pathologies of overconcentration of power is to have the leader think, hey, I'm going to be out of office and my people are going to be out of office in yeah. five to 10 years. So there's going to put some bounds on what I do. And so the concern is, you know, are we headed down a path where that's not uh, the case? Obviously, a great deal of power can be used to any number of ends, uh, good, bad, and indifferent. And what we're seeing right now is mostly a mix of bad and indifferent, I'd say. But, you know, the potential for good is still there, of course. Marshall? Um, I agree entirely uh, with uh, Jacques on that. And um, the, the, the concern uh, is, is, is that China historically moved its economy along through decentralization. Deng Xiaoping's model was let every province, sometimes let every municipality, try its thing. We'll see what works. Now, part of that was due to poverty. Quite mm -hmm. frankly, the government didn't have the people to run the country. But even today, China's very, very different from the U.S. Central government personnel are concentrated around Beijing. They still rely on local governments to implement policy, less so than in the past, 
But that's the pattern in China. And so the question is whether a centralization of control potentially upends one of the key drivers of China's very, very rapid, very successful economic growth. 844-942-7866 is the number if you would like to join in. Your comments are welcome. I guess the question then playing off of what Marshall just said, uh, Jacques, is what do you think the potential economic impact could be for China? Is it the, the potential trouble spots that, that Marshall lay out because of the continuing of the path that, uh, that they see and the potential of, uh, of trouble spots, uh, you know, not being able to carry this significant growth moving forward? I mean, I think they've got some genuine challenges now. A lot of people have lost a lot of money betting that the Chinese miracle would finally come to an end. So there's been an ability to <laughs> yeah. to adapt. But you know, let's look at what already is definitely happening and what even the most optimistic Chinese uh, economic policymakers and, and China watchers will tell you, which is growth is a lot slower than it used to be. Yeah, I mean, the new normal is six to seven percent, and there are real questions about whether that has been reached recently and can be sustained. That's not. Unaccepted. That's not, not unusual. Clearly, it was going to happen. But that's a very different world to live in. It's got an aging population. China's trying to deal with that through moving up the value-added chain, more brain work, less brawn work, more automation. But these are all tough things to do in any circumstance, and they're facing this transition at a rapid pace. Uh, they're yeah. getting older sooner than most countries at their level of development are. They're a huge country, and you know, so sustaining uh, high percentage rates of growth required just vast amounts of you know, increase in, in outputs and so on. Uh, so there is this sort of forward-looking piece, but that's devilishly hard to implement. And then there's this backward-looking piece. What do you do with these big old enterprises, some of which have adapted, some of which haven't? You know, part of the Belt and Road Initiative, there's a bunch of stuff going on there, but part of it is to find work for the big Chinese infrastructure building firms. They're very good at it, yeah. uh, but China is not building as fast as it did. So where do they go? Well, let's build stuff across Central Asia and, and, and over to Africa and build ports and things. Obviously, that's not a full solution uh, because... A lot of that's done abroad, and because some of those projects may not pan out so well, uh, not every country uh, is as effective at absorbing and using infrastructure as China has been, and there have been problems there even. So they've got a whole bunch of things on the plate. They're doing a lot of smart things and promising more smart things to deal with them, but I think you know Marshall and Anne would have their critiques of our areas where the policy is not so well designed, and even under the best of circumstances, it's a tough situation. And how do you see the growth uh, potentially for China moving forward? Well, I see that... I agree with Jacques that, yes, it's going to have some challenges. Uh, all the ones that he named, I actually talked about in my book as well. Uh, and so that's why they need someone to sort of navigate these very uncertain waters. And uh, if you have continual uh, changes in leadership, that would make uh, navigating these uncertain waters even more difficult because then you have all these other political questions that would uh, take up space. And they need to just focus on solving the economic problem. You know, the last thing they want is to have another Tiananmen Square, because that happened uh, when China was experiencing really high inflation in the double digits. It was a period where, you know, they were trying to transition from this agricultural society into the more modern, you know, world where they can have more exports. And this caused... Uh, you know, enormous amount of unemployment and inflation. And so, uh, and that was a very unfortunate situation where, uh, you know, we know what happened. And the Chinese leaders basically will always study their history with a fine-tuned comb and say, you know, we don't want to repeat certain mistakes. 
uh, they probably see this as an equally challenging time to uh, to go through in the next few years, and so, or the next you know ten or twenty years, and and basically have made a calculated decision that um, they're going to batten down the hatches, they're going to stick with. Uh, you know, the formula that they have now, which seems to be working well for them. And um, and so that is, I think, the consistency that they're looking for, even if it is going to be uh, fraught with uh, lower growth perhaps than in the past. But, you know, frankly, it's actually pretty strong growth given that China has a much larger base than it had before. And so 7% on the economy their size is, frankly, a tremendous amount of economic growth. Great having you all with us today. Jacques, thank you very much for coming in. Marshall, great seeing you again. Thank, thank you. you both. And thank you for joining us on the phone today. Many thanks to Marshall Meyer, the Wharton School, Jacques DeLille of the University of Pennsylvania, and uh, also joining us on the phone, Ann Lee from NYU. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.